2: I recognize the whole world is fixated on what's going on in a Florida courtroom, but call me crazy, I do think some people would welcome the opportunity to explore issues beyond the Trump indictment, and that is precisely what we are going to do for the next hour. We will get into the Trump indictment and the arraignment and President Trump's speech last night, a little bit later, but for those of you that need a little bit of a break from wall to wall uh, Trump indictment talk, you are in luck. Turn up the volume and be prepared to let your mind expand. Be prepared to let your curiosity get the best of you because we are about to explore the ultimate unknown. Anything that involves looking up And wondering is on the table for the next hour because along with the world's greatest radio voice and a man who happens to be incredibly knowledgeable about astronomy and space, Dr. Sky Steve Cates, we are going to delve into the mysteries of the universe in a big way this hour. Steve Cates, welcome back for our semi-monthly chat.
3: Well, good morning, Frank. Good to be with you as what we call this hour, what, the infinite side of midnight, as you appropriately said, to let our minds expand and go out beyond this horizon of the earth and get a little bit of reprieve from what? The politics of the day, so to speak.
2: Indeed, indeed. There's a lot to get to, and we will take calls from people that have questions about anything that we're going to uh, get into this hour at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Steve, let me begin with this. I have been sure. all over this um, Story of the UFO whistleblower and we've covered it in every possible direction. We've discussed we've covered it from a skeptical skeptical perspective and taken at face value with some of the things a decorated intelligence officer, David Grush, has been saying here he was on um, News Nation last week. Again, this is a guy that has a pretty good reputation, decorated veteran. This is what he had to say on the subject of secret alien aircraft.
1: Uh, These are retrieving non-human origin uh, technical vehicles, you know, call it spacecraft, if you will. Uh, It's probably not the right parlance, but uh, no kidding, non-human exotic origin vehicles that have either landed or crashed. We have spacecraft spacecraft from another species
2: we do yeah how many quite a number what's your take on this whole thing steve because i think it's pretty remarkable
3: Well, well frank i agree i think it's absolutely phenomenal and once again here we go with the great stories now we don't know all about the whistleblower we either take it for granted that the person's telling us the truth or it requires much more journalism which it will But it's almost synonymous with the story that Robert Lazar came out with. And again, for those that may not be familiar with him, a naval intelligence person who claims that he was involved very heavily with Area 51 at a so-called secret embedded place deep within Area 51 called Papoose Lake. And the quick cut to the chase is he claims to have seen these sport-type craft that were of alien origin. In which he actually saw and went inside a couple of these that they had the ability to do this levitation by some kind of anti-gravity. But in this case, this is even more fascinating. And I've kind of alluded a little bit to my own theory about this. But what I find more fascinating, Frank, about this particular scenario is that this pie-shaped UFO that I'm sure you've reported where they're trying to tug it out of the side of a hillside of rocks... One of the people or a few on board, military people, claim to have gone inside the craft. And let's say for practical discussion, the visual shape of that was probably on the order of maybe 30 or 40 feet. Maybe that's exaggerating. But when they went in, the story continues, according to the whistleblower and according to the statements that we've just heard that you recorded or played back, that once inside, These individuals noticed that the interior was the size of a football field. Right. It distorted
2: space time.
3: Absolutely. So the whole concept here is, wow, to me, that's a really phenomenal revelation. But let's go back to what I was saying a couple of shows ago, that this whole concept of these Tic Tacs, in my opinion, I don't have I don't have proof of this, but anybody can speculate. But from some science, I think those Tic Tacs are something that is from our future. Because the world couldn't, you know, things happened, asteroid impacts, uh, you know, nuclear war, climate change, whatever you want. We went underground as a human species melding with AI. And the greatest conundrum is, how do you go move through time and space? So maybe through this whole process in thousands of years in the future, there's been this ability to warp space-time. So here's some, quote, evidence, at least whistleblower evidence, soon to hopefully be proven. But this is phenomenal, Frank. I mean, this is just incredible that imagine how many people, let's say you purchased yourself a small compact car. Wouldn't that be amazing if you could invite the whole neighborhood to go inside the car if you chose to, or put a whole football stadium full of people inside of it? That justifies everything, including what? The laws of physics that we know. So let's hope we can get some evidence. But uh, I'm kind of skeptical because every time we hear this, what does the government do? It has hearings saying that well, these are things we really don't understand, and we we believe that three or four percent of these things have some mystery behind them. But stay tuned because we have no idea what it is, and maybe they're telling. Maybe they do know more about this. I believe they do, and hopefully someday we'll get the
2: truth. And and just for clarification's sake, the the David Grush whistleblower that commentary about the U.S. Mm -hmm. having these um, aircraft of non-human origin is that the same source as the whistleblower that's represented by this attorney Daniel Sheehan who indicated that he came across this craft that distorted space-time is that the that is that the same source or are we talking two different whistleblowers here
3: I really don't know. I mean, I'm always honest with you in the audience, but I'm going to be investigating this, obviously, like so many people. But in future programs, I'll guarantee you I'll have better information. But the point is, to distort space-time, this has always been the big thing here. How can these craft, if they are from, you know, extraterrestrial, or let's go back to what I said before. Maybe there's this way of distorting space-time, that this is all future iterations of humans, you know, melding in with AI. But the point of the matter is here, that to me is one of the most bizarre things ever talked about, even more than Robert Lazar, who may have sound bizarre, and that rhymes pretty well, <laughs> because even he, I've had interviews with him, I mean, he seems like a credible guy, but the point is, where's the, where's the beef, as they say? Where Where's the proof of this? In other words, what happened to those alleged sport craft that were deep inside Papoose Lake, inside a deep secret area? well within Area 51. I mean, anybody can say this. And that's been a long time ago, and I've never seen any proof of that. So I want to be positive. But I think the government obviously knows, and not just this government, Frank, obviously governments of the world, other other major powers, you know, superpowers, maybe Russia and China have way more information on this. Again, the question is, why can't we be told the truth? What's the big deal? I mean, it, it is a big deal. But why don't we ever
2: know the truth? Yeah, no, that's exactly the question that I've been asking. And uh, if people have sure. questions of their own, they can give us a call at uh, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. We'll get to your questions in a minute. Meantime, uh, we do want to listen to a tune that is going to be tearing up the charts in no time. This is Semper Supra, which is the new Space Force theme song. The Space Force, the sixth branch of the U.S. military, has unveiled their new theme song. Steve, I know you've been, you're a military veteran yourself. What, uh, what do you think of the song? Well, I think it's
3: beautiful. I think it's well written. And I think as we, so you've obviously given me the opportunity not to have to read the lyrics, which sounds, sounds better when we hear it in the musical way. But the truth is, the motto here is Semper Supra. And in Latin, it simply means, very appropriately, always above. I think it's great. And just a little background on the Space Force. This began officially by the U.S. government December the 20th of 2019, when allegedly some 16,000 military and civilians were assigned to this rather unique uh, organization. It was known before it was Space Force, as the U.S., Air, excuse me, the U.S. Air Force Space Command and summarily becoming the Space Force. But what's its purpose? It's to protect U.S. and allied interests, obviously, in space. And what's even more phenomenal here, we're going to see, this is coming through the you know mainstream press all over the world here, that Space Force will be launching a series of constellation satellites. They'll be placed up in what we call geosynchronous orbit. That's that place where if you could actually see in the light of what these spacecraft emit, there's this band around the Earth that literally is like a ring. It's crowded. It's called geosynchronous 22,000 miles up in space that the U.S. Space Force is going to be placing up a series of constellation satellites under the codename Silent Barker. So that's interesting. What is it? These are – and I don't have any more details other than what I read here, but we'll keep you posted. But here it is these will be orbiting satellites placed in the geosynchronous orbit also with the help of the national reconnaissance office that sends up so many of the payloads that are quote secret but it's to counter specifically think about this the chinese have a couple of satellites that we've been concerned about one's called the sj-22 and that allegedly has some sort of a capability whether it's kinetic that it could actually smack into a satellite and it's been tested allegedly in space by the Chinese. So in other words, if you have a billion or $2 billion asset up there, one of our NRO satellites, let's say this device can slam into it if it wanted to and literally take it out. And there's also another of the Chinese satellites called the Sijian 17 that allegedly has a robotic arm that if it wanted to, could create some you know nefarious situations where if it decided to you know pull the camera out of the spacecraft or disable its power source, So that's interesting to know. So there's a real, you know, a real purpose to the Space Force. But going back to the song, it sounds beautiful. It's a great, you know, as we talked about the sixth branch of the U.S. military. So let's always remember on Flag Day, right, Frank? Absolutely. Flag Day officially by the Continental Congress in what, 1777, officially making the American flag, well, the official flag, of the United States. That's
2: right. It, it, uh, Flag Day is older mm-hmm. than the Constitution. Always important to keep in mind. We may get into a little yeah, bit of that history different. a little later. All right. Uh, the phones are exploding with people who have questions for you. 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Ben in Brooklyn. Hello, Ben. Oh, yeah. I, this is my first time uh, calling in. Wonderful. Um, Welcome aboard. Uh, good morning, Ben. Yeah, Thanks sure. for joining us. Yeah. Yeah, Good morning. And uh, normally I'm um uh, I'm in dreamland by this time,
3: but I think I uh got too wired with sugar. But I was just wanting to know of uh, the doctor sure. um with you a doctor, what your view is on um uh how do you say our existence? Were we uh, created or did we evolve or yeah? Well, I think there's two ways to look at it. But Ben, your question, I think, is is really awesome. And it would take light years and time to really explain it. But in my humble opinion, I believe we were created by some almighty power out there. I mean each religion has its you know creator, obviously, hopefully one unified God that can satisfy all religions. But there's also the concept that we look at from science, and again, I can't prove it, but scientists are trying every day is that the entire universe was seeded by material like DNA from comets in a a subject which is a little technical called panspermia. So in other words, life as we know it in the most basic like molecular side could have been sent, obviously not negating a creator, but just to be able to be the delivery system. So let's say it's like an advanced Amazon or FedEx delivery system in which life was seeded onto different planets over the course of time. So that's an interesting perspective. But uh, I appreciate the call there. And I think the, the caller, uh, Ben, you're right up. Uh,
2: thanks, Ben. 800-848-9222. Uh, we'll continue with your questions in a moment. Uh, this is the infinite side of midnight. We do this every two weeks. We had a debate about whether this was biweekly or monthly. Technically, both are correct. Right. So we've converted it to right. a semi-monthly meeting. But, uh, Steve, before I let you go, I have to ask you about sure. this. This Not let you go, but before we pause, I have to ask you about this. A listener sent me some Mm -hmm. photographs of a very handsome child, and they told me that this was you as a child model. Sure enough, I said, all right, okay, it's probably just some child that looks like Steve Cates. I confirm with you, and you did indeed have a career as a child model. I mean, you're like, you, you are the most interesting man in the world.
3: Well, thank you for saying that, but there's plenty of others that I'm sure could uh, also qualify for that title. But seriously, being humble, I did this in my uh, early years back in New York City. I'm a native New Yorker, born in Jamaica, Queens, by the way. I'll never forget the experience of my life living in this great city of New York City. But yes, I was actually part of an agency called the Bonnie Kidd Agency. And the main person that was represented by that agency quickly was Davy Jones of the Monkees. And I used to go in there. I never met him, but I did meet some of the other famous people. But the whole thing is, yes, I did this. I did some television commercials of the 60s. was actually on a show. This is dating me called the Dinosaur Show, doing a milk commercial. And I did a whole lot of catalog work and other things, Frank. So, yes, that, that was me. And that was a long time ago. But uh, whoever sent it in... Uh, I'm proving that it is truly by voice uh, it's me.
2: That is very very impressive I must say. I'm going to post a link to some of these uh, to some of these photos at uh, on my Facebook page if people want to see uh, facebook.com/morano fan. I'll, I'll get that up there in uh, in no time. facebook.com/MORANO fan. We're going to continue with Dr. Sky talk uh, who knows what else. Space, flag day, child modeling and more straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: NYC. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Murano Some people call me the space cowboy. Yeah. Some call me the gangster of love. Some people call me more. The of Love People talk about me, baby Say I'm doing you wrong, doing you wrong
2: well, we are solving many mysteries this hour on the Infinite Side of Midnight, or at least asking more questions about those mysteries. One question that I don't know we will get an answer to is, what precisely is the Pompetus of love? Uh, we have, brighter minds than me, have asked that question, and we have so far not had any luck in solving it. Joined for the hour by the one and only Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, a veteran TV and radio broadcaster and edutainer with expertise in astronomy and space. He's also a terrific podcaster. He does the Dr. Sky Experience. There's great commentaries on there. There's terrific interviews on there. If you're interested in hearing more, you can search the Doctor Sky Experience on any podcast app. Or you can go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com and just search Dr. Sky. Steve, I really love. Stories about messages in a bottle. Just last week, I brought to the listener's attention a story about a message in a bottle that had been recovered 40 years after, more than 40 years after it was thrown into the ocean. I think it's the coolest thing in the world. And uh, I'd love to recover one one day and sort of play detective about who's responsible for sending these messages in a bottle now people may actually have the opportunity to send an interstellar message in a bottle thanks to NASA. Is that right?
3: This is something that's gone on, Frank, a long time with different spacecraft. So it may not be a new revelation to many listeners. But if that's something that's new to you, or it will be, here it is. The Europa Clipper is a spacecraft that should be launched probably around October of 2024. And I got to give credit to an interview that I did a long time ago with then Texas Congressman Culberson. He was responsible for helping fund this project. What is it? It's one of the largest spacecraft ever to be sent out into the solar system because it uses massive solar panels, contrary to what we used to use, is you know, new nuclear type power and different isotopes that we you know had on board. But this particular spacecraft will actually go to the icy moon of Jupiter, as radiation protected as it is. And what I find fascinating is this message in a bottle. We have a poem that's been actually put put there by the uh, U.S. uh, Poet Laureate, excuse me, Ada Limon. And also in there, if people just go to nasaeuropaclipper.com, I'm sure you'll be able to see, or .gov, you'll be able to see an area where you can actually put your name on board this big CD that's going to have millions of names, I'm sure. I did it the other night, and it's kind of cool. It sends you back this little plaque You know, you can print it out. And it's just kind of really cool to say that in the future, you, each individual listening, their name is inscribed for all eternity on board a spacecraft like this. And not to shift gears, but if you don't mind me mentioning something too, Frank, about the Dr. Sky experience, I just wanted to promote something here that's kind of along the same lines. You were talking with me before about what's happening, you know, questioning about the whistleblowers. So we have a brand new interview that I'm very proud of. And I don't jump in on this too much because people tell me they like it. But there's an interview that I did with a CIA pilot named Lieutenant Colonel Frank Murray. He passed away this March at 93 years old, Mm -hmm. and I spent a lot of time with him. He was one of the first people to fly the then very secret Lockheed Skunk Work aircraft called the A-12. This is the predecessor to the the SR-71. And he did so much when the USS Pueblo was captured back in 1968. You have to go there and listen to this interview because it really talks about an American hero. And guess where he was based? He couldn't tell his family, but for two years he was kind of entombed, you know, not in a bad way, at Area 51. Imagine not being able to tell your family where you were, but going back here, you know, staying on measure here. This Europa Clipper is just something fascinating. But this has happened a lot, Frank. a lot of times on these different missions. I remember the one, New Horizons. When my mentor, Dr. Tombaugh, who discovered the then planet Pluto, they had the same thing for New Horizons. So we put our names on there, and so many of our friends did. But you know what the coolest thing about it is? The children out there that have so much aspiration and inspiration from studying space, now this is a way. Imagine when we were younger. I mean, I'm older. I'm 67. You didn't have that ability to do that. You could write letters. But now space is a place for everybody And you can do that. And I think it's just a nice way to uh, pay tribute to these missions and be part of it.
2: Wow. All right. Well, a lot. so if people want to try to get in the queue for sending this uh, space message in a a bottle through this Europa Clipper, how do they do that?
3: Well, you just go to this website. I don't have the exact URL, but just go to the NASA Europa Clipper. I believe it's .gov. If you just Google it. You'll see the whole page about the, you know, the, who's in charge of the mission, what its purpose is, and there's a little line there. I don't have it in front of me. I'm not sitting in front of a computer, but you'll see the one that says message in a bottle, and it's just so incredible. And I'm sure by the power of this station and where you are mm-hmm. all over the country here in syndication – I'm sure that's going to light up their numbers uh, as far as people signing up in the most rapid way
2: possible. I think it's really neat. I just <laughs> signed up. So if people are interested, they go to Europa.NASA.gov, and they could there sign the message and get on board. I think it's really interesting. All right. A lot of people eager to chat with you. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Queens. Hello, Joe.
3: Yeah. Hi, Steve. You know, Solaris with Good morning. George Yeah. That movie Solaris with George Coney was strange to mm-hmm. me. But uh, my question, two questions. One is, uh, those war movies with those fighter jets, were,
1: how did they film those movies at that speed, you know, those fighter
3: jet scenes? Then my mm-hmm. second question is about yes. these, this chat g p t or whatever you call it. Uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Are people looking at this like as like a confident? Like I was listening to one thing. This girl was talking to this thing like it was her boyfriend. Is this like where people think they're talking to aliens? What do you think of people interacting with these chat uh, AI devices at that level? Well, I go to the first part of it, Joe, and good morning. Thanks for being with us. You know, the chat GPT, I tried it, and I was kind of not a super technical computer person, and I couldn't believe it. I know, Frank, you probably tried it, too, that you put in your name or you do something, and it's just scrolling out like mad as if it's writing, you know, in real time. But some of it was inaccurate. I mean, I won't go through mine personally because we spent enough time talking about me from the, you know, modeling days. But the reality is this is so interesting. It's good and bad. I mean, you know, now we see the good is we're like going into a brain that really has no limitations, It could probably beat even the best chess players on Earth, and I think they have. You know, this is interesting. But going back to your first part uh, that you were asking about, how do they film these particular scenes with the, the jets? I'm talking about more like Maverick. You know, they have these special jets that they fly that have these amazing cameras that are nudged up underneath the aircraft. And it's just an amazing tribute to the technology that they have today that they can do this. And in our aviation world, I remember with my brother and his photorecon.net group, you know, people can go there to see so much in the world of aviation that they and their, you know, photo team shoot. But isn't that incredible, Frank? And it's just amazing how they capture this. And what is it? I think it's even better than 4K. So when you saw Maverick, uh, those shots were done uh, by taking military jets or other jets with these bubble cameras. It's just mind blowing. But you're always on measure, Joe, and thanks for
2: calling. 800 We talk a little bit about life on planets and places other than Earth, and who knows what form it may exist, and I believe it probably exists in a bunch of different forms, from the microscopic, from the microscopic to the uh, amoeba-like to super-advanced intelligences in places that we can't even fathom. What are we hearing about the possibility that life may actually exist on the moon?
3: Well, Frank, this is interesting, and the simple answer to this is it may have also been earth-inspired. And here's the backstory. The Israelis launched a spacecraft, and I hope I pronounce it right, the Hebrew word Betashit, which actually means translation in the beginning. It's in the beginning of the Torah, and obviously we find it in other religions around the world, but this Israeli spacecraft was to be the first private lunar lander. And in 2019, as it was descending, it crashed on the moon. Well, we found out that there's also a few other spacecraft like this that have done the same thing recently, private enterprise. But on board this particular lander, there was human DNA samples, a lunar library, whatever that means. But here's the most interesting part. There were some tiny creatures known as tardigrades. Now, what are they? They're referred to in the bio world as little water bears. They're tiny. They're about the size of maybe the period on a sentence. But these tiny creatures are known to survive in the harshest of conditions. I'm not a biologist, but they can go to the extreme cold that's off the charts in areas where there's no oxygen, where there's high radiation. It sounds like the moon, doesn't it? And some, Frank, have actually been revived in you know, laboratories after 10 years. But here's the interesting thing. When this spacecraft crashed, many are scattered on the surface of the moon. So could they have survived? Maybe one day we'll know. But hopefully it's not going to be like a movie if anybody saw it. I thought it was ridiculous, a movie called Apollo 18, unless you're a real diehard sci-fi person without being a movie spoiler. It was as if one of the Apollo missions called Apollo 18 went to the moon and something was living there, and it turns out to be nothing but the uh, horrible monster scenes that they eat up these astronauts. But isn't that fascinating about these tardigrades? These little tiny things, if you look at them, they literally look like little bears but there's some of the most resilient little ob- uh, creatures and not objects, the creatures that are on the entire planet. And maybe in the world of, uh, you know, the, the lunar surface, who knows? Maybe they can actually survive and, and fester. So life may be on the moon due to things that happened from the Earth that we sent the spacecraft.
2: 800 Steve is in New Jersey. Hello, Steve.
3: Hey, good morning, guys. Thanks for taking the call. I was wondering, how do you guys
1: feel about the theory that the pyramids are older than we've been told and actually could have been built by
2: aliens?
3: Well, here we go, Steve. Another great story and another great conundrum. I'm concerned about how they moved the stones, because if you look at the stature of the Egyptians at that time, these were not very tall people. At least that's not what we think. So they were small stature, nothing like the average height of, let's say, an adult today, man or woman. But the problematic thing there is how did they move the stones? And there's all kinds of theories there about anti-gravity devices, and levitation, and things of that nature. So it's one of the most amazing conundrums that we can think of in science. And by the way, just for everybody listening, these pyramids were aligned to particular stars. And one in particular that the ancient Egyptians used was the bright star Sirius. It was known in the Egyptian world as a god called Sopdet. And What they did was every summer, toward the end of August, they would do what's called a, a, you know, kind of a festival to the helical rising of Sirius. And in that particular case, it was time to actually start planting and, and harvesting, you know, growing crops, I should say. But these stars, there's alignment to certain stars where they actually had the sarcophagus when they put the pharaohs down into these deep parts of the of the uh, you know pyramid. They actually had these light shafts or these shafts that would actually point to the then pole star. But who knows, Steve, maybe there was more to this than meets the eye. Because if you look at some of the actual drawings and depictions, they show rather strange artifacts on top of the heads of some of these beings or people. And who knows, maybe that's a replication of uh, some sort of alien visitation. It's one of the most fascinating stories and a great question.
2: Thank you, uh, Steve. One of the things that we've also heard about is the similar uh, structure of structures that are on either the moon or Mars or both to ancient uh, structures that have been on Earth. I know uh, Richard Hoagland has made this a big issue for a long time, as as have others do you lend any credence, even if it wasn't aliens, but lend any credence to the possibility that some sort of advanced intelligence was on this planet uh, millennia ago that could have also been elsewhere?
3: I believe that we have been visited. I mean, I'm pretty much like on the 95 you know percent plus side of that equation. I can't prove it. But when you take a look at some of these so-called artifacts, I, I know Richard well and I respect his research. I mean, we've been listening and conversing over the years from the coast-to-coast days that he was there with Art Bell. But the interesting thing is, if you take a look at one of these so-called artifacts, the face on Mars, it's been pretty much proven in the scientific community that it just happens to be a replicant of what looks like a face, but it's because of the sun angle. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, maybe it is, but many of the spacecraft imaging show it at different times of the day or different times of the month, and actually it just looks like a rubble pile that happens to look like but Richard went on to a theory that talked about glass, you know, structures on the surface of the moon. And not to disagree with them, I say from a science standpoint, I think we need a little bit more evidence. And I think the best way to do this to make everybody at least happy in the in the room, let's say, those that believe and those that don't believe. I always say this, let's send a lander back to the surface of the moon, a robotic spacecraft. I think it could be done very easily, but unfortunately some of these little spacecraft from privatized you know industry have crashed. I'm sure that Elon and his team could do this right, land next to say the Apollo 11 landing site. And let's once and for all prove that there's a descent module sitting there with a washed out American flag because of the intense solar you know, radiation. It doesn't have, to, as we talk flag day, sorry to say this US flag, but it's probably washed out. But at least let's go there and let's identify what's on the surface of the moon and any of these so-called areas on the surface of the moon that have these you know, theories where there's glass castles on the moon, let's land in those sites and let's take a look and see that in 4K and in 8K video or better. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing? And I would probably pay for a pay-per-view session, wouldn't you? Uh,
2: Just to see it. No doubt about it. What is the Era Karina star?
3: Here's something interesting. We talk a lot about Supernova. Let's talk about Beetlejuice, the big star, the armpit of Orion. We've talked about it, the news, you know, world and the medias, all the awesome stories about this star being, you know, a super red giant star that over the years it started to dim. It's an intrinsic variable star that has many, many cycles. But that's not the point today. There's other objects like what we call Eta Carini. Here's a star in the southern hemisphere, Frank, that's not visible even here from Phoenix where I am. You'd have to go down a little bit farther maybe about another 10 degrees south, maybe into Mexico or areas latitude south. In 1843, observers here in the world in the Southern Hemisphere observed Delta Carini flaring up in brilliance almost as one of the most brilliant stars in the heavens. What is it? It's a very strange binary star that for some reason is looking like, and they got to be careful how I say this because this star may go supernova. What happened in 1843 was imaged by things like the Hubble Space Telescope, and what we see is a nebula which is surrounding the stars. You can't actually see the star itself. It's called the Homunculus Nebula. It's translated into the Little Man. It looks like if you image it and and do Google it and just look on there, Ada Carini in the image side, you'll see these two big lobes. But this is really bizarre. Ada Carini is the only star or a system that we see that, get a little at this, that actually produces ultraviolet laser emissions. What the heck did I just say? Ultraviolet laser emissions from a star system? But here's the problematic thing. It's 7,500 light years away from us. Betelgeuse is 500 light years away. But if and when Ada Carini does blow, it would still be one of the most magnificent sky events for the entire Southern Hemisphere. So it's a very strange star. Nobody understands the dynamic. It's a binary star. And something's happening where either one of those two stars is either pulling material off of it and slamming it into the other star. So Ada Carini is uh, really something people could take a look at. And especially if you go to the southern hemisphere, you're not going to be impressed because it's rather faint right now. You would need binoculars to see it. But it's anybody's guess, Frank, what might happen to Ada Carini? It's a strange, very unusual star. How many stars do we talk about that produce ultraviolet laser emissions? That's crazy. Wow. But it's in science.
2: Yeah, no, that is wild. All right, we're going to continue with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, in a moment. We'll also continue with your questions in a moment. 800 This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of Midnight. the other side of midnight with frank morano song check ignition and may god's love be with you So, I'm stepping through the door and I'm in the most
2: peculiar. The great way. David Bowie. This is the infinite side of midnight. My guest for the hour is Steve Cates, aka Dr. Sky. You're gonna to wanna to check out the Dr. Sky experience if you're interested in any of these subjects. Just search it on any podcast platform, Spotify, anywhere. Or you can just go to RedApplePodcastNetwork.com and search the Dr. Sky Experience. Steve, if uh, either of us do make a trip to space anytime soon, apparently that might not be the best news for our brains. Uh, There's some news out this week that astronauts' brains take a bit of a hit during long space flights. I mean, guys like uh, John Glenn uh, certainly seem very much with it. Buzz Aldrin certainly seems very on top of things. What is space doing to these astronauts' brains?
3: Well, again, this is rather interesting. The longer-duration space missions, if you look at Scott Kelly, Mark Kelly, the United States senator here from Arizona, who was a shuttle commander, his brother had one of the longest U.S. records in space. And they were talking about issues with the legs as far as circulation. And you watch when you see a lot of these cosmonauts or even American astronauts when they return before the days of SpaceX, when they return in those Soyuz uh, capsules. Their system, the Russians, would land on land, which to me is just totally amazing because what happens if chutes don't work? You go splat. Water is not as good, but the water could also hurt too. But what's interesting is you watch the videos. If you really watch this closely, You see, these astronauts barely can stand because of the change from weightlessness to the whole dynamic of returning to the gravity of the Earth. But in space, not being a medical doctor by any chance, what I'm saying to you is we have changes in the brain, we have changes in the circulation. And the biggest problem that has to be solved on board long-duration space missions is the subject matter of radiation from space. Cosmic rays probably are one of the most, you know, uh, most important things to protect the astronauts internal and all kinds of radiation. Because what happens if the sun blows out like a Carrington flare like it did in 1859? So there are changes that happen to the body from the longer duration space missions. So God help us, if we don't study that carefully, Mars missions may bring us back people if we go and hopefully we return them to some serious medical concerns from not only the internals, on board, what happens to the body, you know, not being able to move like you could on Earth with gravity. You might have to create, like in 2001, a space vehicle that has a rotating, you know, position where you can create artificial gravity. But that's a, a great subject. But I'm more concerned about the solar flare and uh, cosmic radiation that would be induced into the body.
2: Mm, uh, you and me both. 800 848 9222. Jacqueline is in Brooklyn. Jacqueline, you're on with Dr. Sky. Hello. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. Um, Thank you. Steve,
1: I am curious: is Dr. Sky just a catchy moniker, or do you have a PhD in astronomy?
3: No, absolutely, and it's something that we need to qualify here. It's a trade name for what I do as a journalist, and that's something we, you know, got a years ago. So I side on the side of being honest with everybody, and that's certainly interesting because my background is deep into the subjects, and I just hope everybody enjoys the uh, the commentary in the way we present it. So I appreciate your uh, your concern, and I'm um, an honest man.
2: Yeah, and uh, you know, these days you could just make up credentials anyway. Apparently, Steve, you know, you, I mean, why should you be any more honest than everybody else that's in the the media, right? <laughs> there
3: you go. <laughs> but hey, it's good to say that, and I'm sure the listeners will continue to want to listen because, like I say, this is the most amazing subject, and I appreciate the opportunity, Frank, to bring it to this radio station and this platform.
2: Same here, uh, Steve. Before we run out of time. Give us a preview of what we can see in the night sky with the naked eye, with some binoculars, with a telescope. What's exciting that people might be looking forward to checking out?
3: Well, this is amazing because as we move toward the the summer solstice coming up here on the 21st, we find out that the moon goes to new on the 18th. So if you get up early in the morning, wherever you're listening to, and it's early morning for many, if you look early, let's say an hour or two before sunrise, you'll see this beautiful waning crescent moon. So the Moon and Jupiter are actually close together early this morning if you're up looking just before sunrise. That's always in the uh, southeast part of the sky. But what's really interesting, let's shift to the evening. In the evening sky, Frank, Venus is now almost at its most brilliant. It was farthest away from the Sun earlier this month. So Venus is that bright thing that's in the northwest. But if you have a pair of binoculars, take a look at this. This happens on today, the 14th, at the nighttime sunset. Venus glides through a cluster of stars called the Beehive Star Cluster. Technical name for it is Messier 44, and that's a beautiful sight because you're looking at Venus, now less than 60 million miles from the Earth, and the star cluster in the background, in the binoculars, this is not naked eye, that's some 500 light years away, which makes this the most beautiful sight in the sky. And just to the left of that, if you scan a little few degrees, maybe four or five degrees to the left, the planet Mars is visible to the naked eye, very faint. It's now about 190 million miles away from the Earth. So we get to see these most magnificent things in the sky. And believe me, the best is yet to come, Frank, and here it is quickly. When the moon goes to the new phase, I call it the dark of the moon, it's not in the sky. What I recommend to listeners, wherever you're listening, you have a clear sky coming up, say, between, even now, but up around the 18th precisely. Look to the southern sky with a pair of binoculars, hopefully away from lights, and you will see the magnificence of the summer Milky Way. You're looking deep at the star clouds in Sagittarius and Scorpius. We were just doing an event on this weekend up in Sedona. What a beautiful place. And you know what's so interesting, Frank? Seriously. I'd say majority of those people that came to the rooftop, they were northeast people, mostly from New York City and Boston. Hmm. So it must be a catchy thing to come to dark skies. But wherever you're listening, if you have the ability to do this, you're staring into the core of the Milky Way where there's a supermassive black hole embedded in there. You can't see it. But just from the beauty side, Frank, I can find no better night or way to spend time with friends, family, or even by yourself to contemplate like we do not only on your show with John Katz and the TDs, of course, on the Round Roundtable every Sunday. And we say with John, and John says it back, to open our minds and expand our minds on the many wonders that are out there. As we know, every day, the political world heats up with obviously important things. But here's a chance to kind of pause it for a moment, breathe deeply and kind of get the best out of life. And I think that's some of it, don't you think?
2: Absolutely. 800 Robert is in Suffolk. Hello, Robert.
3: Hi, fellas.
1: I was wondering about magnetars short of a black hole. They are the most. Magnetically powerful objects in the universe, I would say. Yes, and they
3: are. I think mm-hmm. there's only one in the Milky Way or maybe two. Right. There's probably, Robert, but, your question is really good and your comment. But here it is. What magnetars probably are is another iteration of a pulsar. In other words, when stars go and they explode, let's say, they supernova, they collapse, they can turn into a white dwarf. There's another sidebar that they can turn into something called a pulsar. And even more powerful than that, as you brought up, is this strange thing called a magnetar. Now, can you imagine a little tiny object, maybe larger just by a chance by the size of the Earth now? This is not exaggeration. And if you were to look at that thing, it would look absolutely spherical, like a ball bearing, just barely shining because it doesn't give off a tremendous amount of light initially. But on the surface, what makes this thing so unusual is you would be witnessing these cracks in there, and these cracks are called starquakes. And what's happening is is the thing is jiggling. It would actually look like it was jiggling in front of you, but God help us, you wouldn't want to be near it. You're absolutely right, Robert. It sends out the most powerful emissions out into the universe, and nobody can quantify this. I mean, what causes magnetar uh, power? But it's way off the charts. I mean, I've heard some explanations like this, that a magnetar's blast of energy could be more than a hundred million times the output of the sun. How can something that tiny, believe in it, let's say it's the size around that size of the, of the earth itself as a planet, produce that much energy? This is the strange stuff that scientists are studying, and hopefully one day we'll get an answer to all this. But let's thank God that there's no magnetar within a couple of hundred light years of the earth. Let's keep them far away. Thank you. I think you'd all agree.
2: Absolutely. Thank you, Robert. Steve, before we run out of time here, there was a story I saw this week on space.com about Mm -hmm. signals, repeated signals, basically radio signals from the center of the Milky way that a new study suggests could actually be aliens saying hello. Uh, Help clarify this for us. What are these signals? Where are they coming from? And what are the possibilities of what they might be?
3: Well, just like Robert was talking about, the whole concept and conundrum of a magnetar. In this case, we're getting another blast from the universe called these gamma ray bursts. And once again, nobody really understands what they are. But some of the radio astronomers that actually detect these, they say that again, it's always plausible. Can't be proven until it's absolute. You know, you have the the evidence here, but until we find it, we're seeing these signals come out in a repetitive pattern, and what's a, what's unusual about this is we've searched the skies with radio telescopes for what, 50, 100 years maybe, and there was one incident from a, I believe it's somewhere in Ohio, one of the universities there, there was a strange signal, one of the most strange repetitive signals that was ever recorded by you know radio astronomers. And it still to this day has never been answered as to what it is. But those type of signals, are they a coded message? Is it something from deep within the universe that's saying, yes, we're here? But let's not jump to too many conclusions because maybe, just maybe, and not to put down the 8 billion people on the planet, which I'm included and you are and the listeners, maybe the alien intelligence wants to skip by us. Because we can't get along. Maybe, they, maybe they're so far advanced that they just don't want to come communicate with this species, not to put us down. But who knows? It could be something. The gamma ray bursts are also, like we had before talking about magnetars, some of the most incredible energies given off by objects in deep space. The study and search continues as to what the origin of these are. And that's why we love this subject, isn't it? Isn't it fascinating?
2: Yeah, that that is for sure. Let me ask you this, uh, Steve: We have spent a lot of time exploring solar energy on on Earth, and now uh, there looks like there's a possibility that scientists have actually beamed solar power back from space using technology placed in high orbit that allows it to collect the sun's energy. Could space solar actually be part of the solution to our planet's energy needs?
3: I think it could. But unfortunately, it's not really yet developed to the point. I give it, you know, I'm just guessing here, give it 50, 100 years. But they have done demonstrations where you've actually taken energy and beamed it down to the Earth, whether it's in microwave, whether it's in some other high band, you know, frequency. But the interesting thing is collecting the surface Of the, you know, as we see solar panels on many places, that's a good step in the right direction. But there's probably better energy sources that we can go out there into space and, you know, help develop. And some of them happen to be on the surface of the moon, like I talk about many times. The actual, you know, acquisition of the helium-3 isotope that's on the surface of the moon, it's material that's laden into the lunar dust over billions of years. The sun is actually, quote, energizing some of that material and it can be processed. And the only geologist to ever go to the moon was Harrison Schmidt on Apollo 17. He's a big fan. You know, the former U.S. senator from New Mexico, astronaut, is a big fan of being able to harvest this, you know, helium tree isotope and help bring it back to the Earth as one way of solving all of our so-called fossil fuel, which is a bad term because the fossil fuel wasn't just, you know, crushed dinosaurs. It's actually composition material from, like, plants that was under the earth for billions of years and crushed and pushed into what we call crude oil. But hopefully we'll be able to develop these sources of power. But the most near and dear one is the Artemis uh, crews that go to the surface of the moon. There is a company, I'm not sure which one it is by name, but I've read that they're looking to send a small nuclear powered uh, you know, plant, a little generating plant onto the surface of the moon. And also solar, I'm sure would work in some of those craters.
2: Steve Cates, the hour just flies by when we're together. I'll look forward to uh, chatting with you again in two weeks, if not sooner.
3: Thank you, Frank. I appreciate your time.
2: The Infinite Side of Midnight. Until we meet again, keep keep reaching for the stars, but keep your feet on the ground.